Hey, everybody. Welcome to The Asian Americans. This is your host, Jerry Wan. Hope you're doing well. Hope you're staying safe and healthy and happy. I want to encourage everybody on today, May 8th, to take a moment to reflect on the life and memory of Ahmad Arbery, who was a an unarmed 25-year-old out for a jog in Georgia a little more than two months ago on February 23rd, and he was shot, murdered by two cowardly white men who chased him down in their pickup truck because they thought he was a suspect in something. And only when video evidence of the crime surfaced did the DA finally succumb to public pressure and arrest and charge the two men yesterday. It would have been his birthday today, his 26th birthday. And his mother is spending his birthday without him for the first time and will spend Mother's Day without him for the first time. It breaks my heart. It makes me angry. Things like this shouldn't shouldn't happen. You can go for a run and expect to come home alive. So if you're out there, uh, join me and the countless other people who are going to spend some time walking, running, or jogging 2.23 miles in honor of Ahmad Arbery on today, May 8th, on what would have been his 26th birthday. We need to fight for justice. We need to fight for our brothers and sisters, regardless of what we look like. Here on the Asian Americans, we celebrate, support, and inspire each other. But we're only here because of the love, support, and inspiration of all human beings, other Americans who've come and paved the way in the world of civil rights, and so much more. So we want to do our part. I encourage you to do a little bit of reading today, do a little bit of introspection, and to do what we can. Sign a petition, call a politician, whatever we need to do, whatever you can do from home to make sure that this stuff does not happen again. My guest today is Sam Cho, one of the five commissioners of the Port of Seattle, one of the biggest, largest ports, both air and maritime in the Pacific Northwest. He won the seat at the age of 29 and the kid of a Korean immigrant who used to own a dry cleaner's worked in the White House, in Congress, and now is a publicly elected official in one of the largest counties in the country in charge of so much more. It just He's an amazing guy, a great friend of mine. I know you're going to enjoy hearing his story. So without further ado, here's Sam. Welcome to Dear Asian Americans. I hope you're staying safe. Hope you're staying well. Uh, we're recording this right in the smack middle of April on the 16th. So um we're, we're still, most of us are staying home. Um, I'm here in Los Angeles, as you guys know. Our guest is from Seattle, Washington, uh, one of the cities that were hit um, a little bit earlier and uh, where we found out, unfortunately, about the first um, mass round of cases uh, of COVID-19. And we don't have just anybody on the show today. We have somebody who's extremely special, a friend of the show, a friend of mine, and a friend of many of our listeners uh, the first ever Asian American elected official to the Port of Seattle, which is one of the largest ports that brings in travelers, goods, um, and really money at the end of the day uh, to America uh, through our port in the North Pacific Northwest. Uh, so welcome, Sam Cho, to the show. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Happy to be here. So, Sam, let's talk. I look at your profile and people who've known you for a while. Um, you've had a ex- very, very fun and interesting life. You have uh, some life experiences, particularly on the professional side, that are uh, 
you know, go, wow, that's, that's really impressive. Um, but before we talk about working at the White House, before we talk about working for Congress and um, certainly, um, certain, you know, having this job now that really is so important to the health, safety and the economy of all of us. Uh, let's talk about Sam in his earlier years. Um, talk to me a little bit more about how the Cho family moved to America and and where you grew up and share with us a little yeah. bit about growing up. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. Well, uh, first, thanks so, so much for having me, and I appreciate uh, this time. And I have to apologize in advance for how scrappy I look right now. Uh, I think uh, the COVID-19 pandemic has allowed all of us to let loose a little bit, so I have more facial hair than I normally would have. Um, for those of you who are watching this as well as listening. I was going to say that now you got the podcast listeners looking up the video of the interview <laughs> to see how scrappy you really do look. Yes. See, that was the whole plan. But if you're listening, just imagine a really big beard. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> a foreign Asian dude too. <laughs> um, so, yeah. So to get back to your question, you know, my parents immigrated to the United States in the late 80s. Um, they were in their early 20s. My parents were actually really young when they had me. My mom was 24 and my dad was 23. Uh, and so, you know, they actually immigrated here in the late 80s. Um, I was born in Chicago, but my dad went to the University of Washington. Um, and so he, so we grew, I grew up in Seattle um, and, and he actually never finished school because he had to make ends meet for uh, the family. Uh, but he worked as a, a dry cleaner. And like many Korean American, uh, Korean immigrants, he uh, was a dry cleaner for many, many years. Uh, and that's how I grew up. Um, and, you know, my parents were first generation uh, immigrants. And so I grew up in the pretty prototypical immigrant household, spoke Korean at home, um, went to Korean school on Saturdays. Uh, you know, my parents were extremely devout Christians. And so I grew up in the church. Uh, you know, played pickup basketball every week. Uh, you know, all the all the great things that I think are unique to our culture and you know our immigrant experience. Um, and so yeah, and then you know I would just add that you know uh, this is really a unique story for me because uh, you know a unique case study, and I think it influences me as a person today is that you know part of our family's success was due to the fact that um, when my dad was a dry cleaner he had a customer who worked for Costco. You know, everyone knows Costco. And um, what happened was one day his, he was having a conversation with his customer and, and this was back in the early 2000s, late, you know, and Costco was looking to expand beyond the United States, right? Opening up warehouses all over the world and Asia was one of their targets. And so uh, they were just having this casual conversation about, you know, Korea and the market in Korea and whether or not my dad thinks like there's a there's a market for Costco in Korea it turns out Costco made a decision to start opening warehouses in Korea and uh one of the first things that the guy said was like I know nothing about Korea we don't have a lot of Korea experts and and my dad I don't know what came over him but he just said oh I know Korea uh and so uh this still baffles me today. He, for some reason, he went on a limb. He sold the dry cleaning business and started this, you know, contracting company for Costco and became a contractor for Costco in Asia. And so he started building, he started helping Costco build uh, warehouses in Korea. 
He built them in Japan. He built them in Taiwan. And so that's kind of our rags to riches story. Not that we're rich or anything, but um, we, my dad was given this opportunity happenstance and um, he ran with it and he, he started this fairly large uh, construction business in Asia uh, that, you know, ran its course. And, and that was kind of how my family kind of, you know, achieved the American dream, so to speak. How old were you when this was going on? And, and did you yeah. have an opportunity to take part or at least observe what was going on through this process? You know, that's such a great question because I was, um, this was like early 2000s. So I was probably, I was like in sixth grade middle school when, when this started to take off. And uh, you know, as much as uh, most API families, like our parents aren't that great at English, right? Like they, they get by, but they're not like professionally proficient, right? Uh, and so I, I, I grew up writing my dad's emails. <laughs> wow. Um, yeah. So, you know, my dad would tell me what he wants to say in Korean. I would translate it into English and I would send them off. And, and we're talking about like Costco executives, like executives, <laughs> vice presidents, you know, like people who are like, you know, way up there in the, in, in the upper echelons of these, this mass Fortune 500 company had no idea that these emails were coming from a 13-year-old, right? Uh, and it's actually really funny because I think that there's a disconnect between the way my dad speaks Korean to people in person and then the way I wrote my emails. So my my, my speculation is that some people were like, how is this guy's, how are these guys' <laughs> emails so uh, well-written? And how is it that when I actually speak to him, it's like broken English? Uh, so, you know, I'm sure some people caught on, but... Um, that was my experience. That was actually my first exposure to business, entrepreneurship, just the the corporate culture. Um, I was kind of just thrown into it because, uh, you know, like many children of immigrants, you're kind of an ambassador uh, between your parents and the rest of the, the world. And so uh, that was kind of my lived experience. That's that's how I kind of grew up. I, I started writing emails for my dad, um, you know, even through college. When I was in college, my dad would randomly call me, right? And I knew whenever he called me, it wasn't to check in on me. It was to write an email for him. And I just like <laughs> impulsively, my impulse to pull out my laptop as I was receiving the call to get on the phone to, you know, start, you know, it, it was impulse, you know. Um, but yeah, so that's, you know, I, I would say that I had a pretty good lens into the business, you know. Talk to me about your, you know, after that. So, you know, as you enter high school and, yeah. and decided to attend university um, out in the Washington, D.C. area, um, you, you grew up, I, I guess yeah. your, your moving here was, was due to your father's academics. And then you get a, got a glimpse of small business and now a little bit of a bigger business. Um, what were some of your aspirations yeah. growing up in terms of career? And yeah. what were your parents' input into that yeah. equation? Um, so, uh, you know, I actually, since around that same time in middle school, I had thought that I was going to become a doctor and like most Asians, I guess. Um, but what, what was interesting to me is that like never at any point in my life had my parents pressured me into that. You know, that was just a natural desire on my part. Um, part of it was because when I was in middle school, I went on this uh, uh, missionary trip through the church down to Mexico. And, you know, I just saw things and experienced things and that kind of, um, you know, helped me to conclude, look, I want to become a doctor, go on medical missions, become the Albert Schweitzer of this generation or, or, or Paul Farmer, 
of this generation. That was kind of like my 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 life goal was to become the next Paul Farmer, basically. For anyone who knows who that is, um, uh, and so I actually went into college thinking I was going to go to med school. I was pre med. I was a biological anthropology major, and I was taking all the prerequisites for um, for for med school, uh, the OCHEMs of this world, and uh, you know you know molecular biology, all that stuff, and then. Uh, I realized my sophomore year that I was actually pretty pedestrian and mediocre at, at life science. Like I was not getting the grades that I needed to, to make it into the top med schools or maybe even med school at all. And so there was a point where I started to question whether or not like I was, this is a, a path for me, you know, and, and it, it just so happened that, you know, and thank God for this is that, uh, you know how, when you go into school, uh, in universities, most universities have like uh, general education requirements or general GURs where like you have to take different classes in different fields, right? Before you actually end up going into your major. Uh, and what, one of the classes I took was actually like a global studies class, right? So it was a class on like, you know, international relations, you know, uh, you know, globalization, all these things. And, and that fascinated me. Like, I remember going into that class kind of reluctant because I didn't really have an interest in any of this because I was pre-med, obviously. But then the first lecture, I was like so fascinated by, you know, how the world order is, how, you know, you know, you know, all these entities, you know, um, like the UN, the World Bank, IMF and all these other things. And so uh, it sparked my interest. And I think uh, that was the reason that that was the catalyst for why I started to make a transition from being pre-med to being uh, an international relations and foreign policy person. Right. And so I actually ended up transferring to American University after my sophomore year to study uh, IR, international relations, Mm. Uh, because and I think part of the reason that I was so enticed is because, you know, when you study pre-med and bio, you learn about, you know, the very fundamental, like the very you learn about life on a very like uh, granular level or a, a, a molecular level, right? Carbon and, you know, how, you know, all these things, but you don't really see it, right? You don't really feel it. Like you're just learning these things. You learn the processes and, and, you know, all these like glycolysis, you learn all these things, but you don't really feel it. When I learned about, you know, globalization and international relations, like you see it. Like you literally read it in the right. paper, you see it happening in front of you. And so I think that was why it piqued my interest so much. Um, and so basically, you know, when I told my parents, my parents had never told me become a doctor, right? But that's probably because I always just wanted to be a doctor. Uh, <laughs> but I'll tell you, when I told them that I wanted to go from being a doctor to like a foreign policy, like going to foreign policy, they flipped, they flipped this shit. I don't know if I'm allowed to say that, but they flipped that. Sure, say, like, yeah. Yeah, they were like, you've been wanting to be a doctor for years. Like, why do you all of a sudden want to switch? Like, what do you mean you want to transfer schools? Like, it was like a complete storm of, you know, pushback. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I think at the end of the day, my parents trusted me and allowed me to transfer. And I went to American University, graduated with honors from the School of International Service. Uh, and, and, yeah, and so that's kind of what that kind of kicked off my career in both foreign policy, international relations, politics, and public policy in general. Give us some insight to spending some time at the White House as an intern yeah. What yeah. during what many of us would consider um, more fond days. Of, yeah, the heyday. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, it was a great time. Look, I, I've been very blessed with the opportunities that I've been presented. I think 
the so basically I interned at the White House Initiative for Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders, which for short we just call WIAPI, right? And this was under the Obama administration, which was very good about you know being inclusive and equitable and uh, all the things that we lack today. It seems like <laughs> uh, from the federal government and the White House, but. You know, it was it was my first lens into domestic politics and like domestic public policy. Um, as I had mentioned before, I was an international relations major. I, I my my focus was really on foreign policy, not domestic policy. And so, when I interned for WIAPI, it was kind of my first foray into uh, domestic policy. Um, stuff that I worked on was like economic development and opportunities for our community, the API community. Uh, you know, how can we promote API small businesses and, and minority business owners? Uh, how can we provide opportunities for them uh, through government programs, grants and subsidies and stuff like that? And so it really opened my eyes to, uh, you know, what's happening on the ground here in the U.S. Uh, when, when, when my studies were really mostly focused on you know, foreign policy, right? Uh, and I think, you know, that was kind of another catalyst for me to kind of seriously consider more focusing on domestic stuff as well as foreign foreign policy but the you know w- when you when you work at a high level like that you're basically working with some of the the, the smartest and brightest and most innovative thinkers in government um, and so it was it was tr- tr- as a senior in college that was a tremendous exposure for me mm-hmm. you know and I still keep in touch with many of the people that I've worked with back then were your parents a bit more relieved or accepting of your decision to go into <laughs> policy once you told them that White House was in the conversation? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think that they were bought in prior to that because uh, they saw that how genuinely I was enjoying what I was studying. But um, there was two things. One was the White House internship, but then also the first job I got out of college was working at the State Department, the U.S. Department of State, which is like the holy grail for foreign policy students. And so right. um, I think that when they saw that my hard work was paying off and that, you know, I was genuinely enjoying what I was doing, I think they were pretty, they, they, I mean, they were supportive regardless, but I think they were a little less concerned about the future of my career. Um, <laughs> you know, cause this is not something that most Asian Americans are aware of, right? Like going into policy politics sure. and or government is like so foreign to first generation immigrants. And so it, it was a huge black hole or, uh, you know, X factor for them. I, I think when we, you know, given the conversations that I've had with not only the guests on this podcast, but obviously my own lived-in experience with, with my friends, our parents' generation or any early immigrant first generation really sees the American government still as not a, not their own, right? They right. still view it from the context of how is the U.S. government's stance towards Korea, which I still consider home. So there's really not this, what some would consider this expectation or audacity to assume that this is my government and that I can play right. a role. And of course, you know, color of skin and race and, you know, all these things play into it. Um, So, yeah, I I think a lot of our peers grew up with this mystique of, one, the government is this mythical being. And two, it wasn't something that we thought ever that we could play in, that, you know, it's not our we don't belong there. We don't have a seat at the table. It's something beyond our, our realm of just, you know keep your head down and study hard. But I think it's, yeah. you know, um, for, to give context to the listeners and, and viewers, you know, uh, Sam has been 
at the White House and at the State Department, then worked for Congresswoman Ami Bera. And it's and then back to, you know, uh, federal government through uh, the General Services Administration. So it's not a who's who or let's, you know, put the logos on a chart and see how cool it is. But you've gotten an extremely robust and diverse view of not only how government operates, but from a number of different angles. Yeah. And yet what you're doing a lot now and what you did at, with your first stint um, at, at the White House was more around economic development for Asian mm-hmm. Pacific Americans, mm-hmm. which I think is extra important that we point that out because mm-hmm. representation is extremely important. We need people mm-hmm. who look like us to inspire us to dream of having those positions. But if you don't do anything with the platform and the opportunities and the um, seat at the table that you have to help yeah. the people that look like you and ultimately help people like your dad, yeah. like, are we doing, is is that enough? I think is, is something that we often yeah. think about. No, absolutely. Yeah. Talk to me about that. And then, you know, how yeah. did you balance just lucky enough to have a seat at the table as we're told way often? And then the other side of, I'm going to make the most of this. Yeah. So uh, just to kind of go back to, you know, what, what we're used to as, you know, and obviously we're not a monolith, right? So everyone's experiences is different, but I think that, you know, just to make a quick point is that there's two things about our, uh, our diaspora and our, our uh, community that kind of makes it more, even more difficult for us to penetrate into the, the public sector or the government side or, um, and that, and the first one is that, you know, that we are all shaped by our lived experiences, right? And for most of our parents and the first generation, their experiences are actually not friendly when it comes to interfacing with the government, right? I mean, think about uh, Vietnamese refugees who came here, right? They, they suffered under a communist regime. They're very wary of big government, right? Uh, think about Korean Americans or Korean immigrants who basically lived under authoritarian rule, you know, under Pak chung and other authoritarians, right? So like the perception or the the inclination to get involved with government is actually not there because of our experience. I mean, even Chinese Americans today who have lived under a communist government come to America with certain certain uh, thoughts about government and some perceptions. And oftentimes that, um, that impedes them from any excessive involvement with government or politicians. Uh, and that translates down to their kids too, quite frankly, you know, you know, I was told as a kid, there's three things in life you should never do, right? It's gamble, right? Drugs and politics, right? Um, and so there's that thing um, that, you know, really it's their, their lived experience as, you know, growing up in these regimes or whatever, whether you're Cambodian and you grew up under the Rohingya regime, I mean, there's just so much out there historically that people don't know the context for. Um, and then the other thing is, obviously, when people think of politics and you're an immigrant, you think of politics within the context of your, your motherland, right? And so if, if anyone knows about the politics of Korea, it's very different from the politics of the U.S. And so when my parents were like, don't ever go into politics, it was the, the, the benchmark was Korean politics. And it, Korean politics is very different from what it is from here. And so it took me a lot of convincing to say, hey, look, like I understand your perspective, but the, the kind of politics that I'm getting into uh, is different, right? Politics here in the United States is different. Um, but yeah, I mean, going back to your original um, kind of point about my experience of uh, penetrating into this uh, this world and um, 
um, and kind of getting a seat at the table, I think what's really important is that what was really important for me at least was that there are people who paved the way for me uh, or, you know, as some people say, like I stand on the shoulders of many giants, right? Um, and, and quite frankly, there aren't a lot in this, in this space, right? I mean, there, there's a good number of them who are very high profile, right? Like Norman Mineta, uh, who was the former uh, Secretary of Transportation, Secretary of Commerce, under two presidents, um, Gary Locke, uh, you know, Secretary of Commerce, gov- first Asian American governor in the history of this country, uh, served as Secretary of Commerce and Ambassador to China, uh, who's actually a, a like a mentor of mine. A good, you know, he's been so instrumental in my success as an elected official and as a candidate. Right, just being able to text him, call him, and say, "Hey, what do you think about this? How can I do these things better?" I think, you know, the biggest, the best on ramp to anything, not just politics, but is to kind of make sure that we're clearing the path for the next generation. And Norm Mineta says this so well. Um, Norm, uh, when I first started thinking about running and was kind of getting into the world of politics, he always has this saying where he says, you know, if you're fortunate enough to make it to the top, um, it's your job to press the elevator button and send the elevator back down, right? So that the next guy who comes along has an easier time getting there, right? Um, I think... Even for myself, it's incumbent. It's incumbent on me, you know. I can be the first of anything, right? And another mentor of mine, Marilyn Strickland, who is the mayor of Tacoma here, always says, "I was the first Korean American uh, mayor of Tacoma, but I should never be the last." Like you can be the first of anything, but you should never be the last, right? And I think that's really, really important because sometimes when you end up in these positions of power or influence with titles, you kind of get into yourself. You know, uh, it's all about you, right? The honorable X, Y, Z. Uh, and you forget that, you, you know, you did this for a purpose and a reason. And hopefully one of those reasons is to, you know, uh, you know, help the next person coming along uh, to, you know, make it further, right? No one should have to start over. In fact, they should take over wherever you, you left off, Um yeah, I, I think it's it's extremely heartwarming and um, affirming to hear of your relationship with people whose names we've heard for a yeah. very, very long time. Uh, we've heard Gary's name recently in an extremely unfair yeah. and, and stupid way. Um, yeah, yeah. But it's because I think of those people and what you're doing that doesn't make the newspaper in terms of finding the young people. Um, having conversations like this because my biggest motivator for wanting to start this thing was because we should know and hear from people like you, Sam, that hold not, you know, these aren't, um, yes, being pork commissioner is a big, big deal, but in the ranking of federal sexiness of positions, it's not <laughs> right. Like, right. <laughs> it's a re- which, which actually I would argue that you make policy and you make decisions that far greater impact the people of Washington state and the greater area. But, you know, we, um, I don't know, congressmen, senators, you know, people at that level um, get a little bit more of spotlight and maybe fairly so, Um, you know, it's, it's a bigger, bigger hill to climb. And that's not obviously their, their first battle. Everybody's put in their dues. Um, Talk to me a little bit about that. You are involved with a lot of different organizations that are, uh, you know, nonprofit. Um, you sit on the board of the Korean American Coalition up in Washington. Yeah. You're very involved with the Council for Korean Americans, um, an sure. organization that I, I love and 
So why is it important for you to spend your precious extra time and resources and energy to do things within the community when you don't have to? Yeah. So, you know, it's interesting because a lot of people might say that you don't have to, but I actually see it as, uh, you know, an obligation on my part. I think uh, part of the reason why I am so involved with specifically the Korean American community, but also just the API community in general, I actually sit on the Commission for Asian Pacific American Affairs here in Washington, which is a an, uh, a position appointed by the governor. You know, it's, I think a lot of states, including California, and you know, have a commission for AAPIs, basically, right, to to make sure that the governor hears the concerns of the API community. Um, I think there's a there's a few reasons. One is just I just feel an obligation to help my community, right? Um, uh, it's the community I grew up in. It's the community that raised me, quite frankly. Um, and so being able to, um, you know, do my part right, is important. But also, I think that it helps me stay connected to my roots. Uh, and I've seen, you know, I, I think maybe this is because I've seen people in the upper echelons of politics and government who uh, get to a certain point and forget where they came from. Right? And it's not just politics, right? Like a lot of uh, celebrities, athletes, it's very easy for you to forget right? Like where you come from once you've reached a certain level of privilege or status or stature. Um, And so part of the reason why I I try to stay deeply rooted in my community is because the community comes to me uh, with their, their problems, with their, uh, their concerns. Um, And that for me is a wake up call in many ways to remember, uh, you know, what, a reminder of my lived experience, right, as the son of immigrants, on you know, all the, you know, I may not experience certain things anymore because we're, uh, because I'm older and because you know I'm not in the same place in life. Uh, but there are other people who have concerns and problems, and you know, some obviously sometimes it's kind of annoying when people like you know hit me up for random things that are like, you know, and Koreans are pretty shameless about just reaching out to other people for things, um, not to throw my own people under the bus, but, but, you know, but at the same time, it keeps me accountable. It keeps me grounded and rooted. And so that's, that's, I think for me, that's, a, that's an even bigger reason why uh, I stay rooted in my communities because I need that constant reminder. And, and I don't say this to, 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 it's not because I think I'm in, I'm a big shot or it's not, I mean, you know, this is not a way for me to say, this is not a roundabout way of me saying, I'm a big deal, but I feel like, you know, it doesn't really matter where you are on the totem pole. Um, you still need that constant reminder. And it also serves as motivation for me to keep going, right. To keep moving up in that totem pole, because I know that there is a need uh, for that. Right. And so I think, you know, it's a combination of all those reasons. So you left DC, you had a brief stint in entrepreneurship, which was yeah. successful and, and timely. Um, but I, I want to get in your mind of yeah. what the heck got <laughs> you in the mindset of I want to run, not just for the smallest of offices. Yeah. Um, again, I, I, I try to frame it earlier, but being the port commissioner of Seattle is a yeah. big, big deal. Um, I mean, you ended up going up against household names in the state in former yeah. mayors of large cities and, right. and, and so yeah. many other people. And here's this, you know. Uh, younger looking Asian kid who has zero background in politics from a state level or local level. Yeah, but right. take, take me back to what 
happened or what went through your mind where you said, I'm interested in politics, number one, and two, I think I'm the best person for this job? Yeah. So let me uh, take a step back and just, you know, touch upon the fact that, you know, I ran an international export and trade business, right? Right after. So I served in the Obama administration, the Obama administration ended, and then I started this business in exports and trade. That kind of provided me with the, and and also let me just, you know, take another step back and say that when I worked for a member of Congress, Ami Berra, who's actually from California, a part of my portfolio of legislative issue was international trade. Right, so trade. If people remember the Trans-Pacific Partnership or TPP, I worked on that as a uh, as a legislative assistant in Congress, and so and, and my dissertation at the London School of Economics was on free trade agreements. So there's like this thread of common commonality on the trade front, right? As, as someone who studied foreign policy, trade was actually uh, my niche area of expertise. And so when I left, when the Obama administration ended, I started this international export and trade business because precisely because I had kind of the policy know-how on trade, but also because I wanted some on-the-ground experience and some credibility on trade. Um, when So what happened was, uh, it's almost a year, a little le- over a year now ago, the current port commissioner announced that she was not going to run for re-election. And this is actually a pretty big deal because uh, the port commission is such a cushy, what people perceive as a very cushy, pretty powerful job not a lot of electeds let go of that position um and and so it's kind of it's like akin to um someone who's been in the office for years and years and years right like uh nancy pelosi obviously suddenly deciding to retire um except this person was really young she was in her mid-30s and everyone thought that she was going to be there for a while Uh, and so the speculation at the time was actually that she was going to run for lieutenant governor or attorney general so she was leaving to prepare for that next office so when that when that position became open, um, I was not actually interested at first. And what happened was a bunch of people started calling me, and texting me, and emailing me, and people in political circles in the Seattle area. And they were like, "Sam, you're a cookie cutter. You, 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 if there's like a cookie cutter person for this job, it would be you." I was like, "Dude, I'm 29. You know, if I would ever run." It would be like later in my life. I don't think this is, you know. Um, but then I started thinking about the job seriously. Like, what what does it mean to be a poor commissioner? What do they do? Uh, and what opportunities there are, you know. And I started to think, you know what? I could actually be good at this job. Like, I think I have the right um, the right combination of experiences to be effective as a poor commissioner. And then I also noticed that the poor commission was extremely white. Five poor commissioners, all white. <laughs> and so that was another factor for me. It's like, man, there's a lack of diversity on this poor commission. Um, but I think that, you know, if there's anyone out there who is considering political office or running for, uh, running for office, um, one thing that I've emphasized uh, is that, you know, the question you should ask yourself is, like, what can you contribute as an, in that position? You know, it should never be about the title or uh, the position itself, right? You know, I believe that, and this is another piece of advice that I received from one of my from one of the mentors that I mentioned previously was, you know, running for office and being elected is a means to an end, but not an end in itself, right? So if you're just running for that title, or if you're just running to get that status, you shouldn't run. And I've told this to multiple people who have asked me, should I run? And I asked them, why are you running? 
And if they can't answer why are they running with anything other than, oh, I want to be a congressman or I want to be a senator, that I, I won't support them. I won't endorse them, right? It's not, you're not doing it for the right reason. When I decided to run, I knew that I can contribute in ways that other people couldn't as someone who exported and was in the trade sphere as a professional and as a trade policy expert. I knew that by being a port commissioner, right, I can potentially contribute in ways that other people couldn't. Because quite frankly, there are a lot of other positions I could have run for, right? You can run for city council, school board. In fact, most people are like, why are you running for a county-wide position? That's insane. As a first-time candidate, you run for city council or school board, right? Something a little lower and work your way up, right? But to run for a county-wide position as your first, you know, as you say, kind of like, it's kind of insane uh, for a guy who had no name recognition, right? But the reason was because I knew that I'd be good at the job and that I was qualified for the job. It was it had nothing to do with the title. It had nothing to do with how big the position was. It was everything about the job and what it was, what I could contribute to it. Um, and so that's what came over me. I said, you know what? And, and the other thing, quite frankly, was I saw there were seven other candidates in this race that had declared, and none of them in my eyes were qualified to be in the port. Like they had no experience with trade. They had no experience with port. It was very clear to me that some of them were running just to hold a title or right. a lot of people think the port is a stepping stone towards something bigger. Like I had mentioned that my predecessor might run for something bigger. Um, and I just don't think, you know, that's right. You know, you know, and so I, I threw my name in the hat to kind of like, you know, stir the pot a little bit. Um, and apparently the voters thought I was, you know, they agreed with me because, you know, I, 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 I won by a pretty large margin, like over 20% in the general. Take us through the heart of the campaign season you yeah. had a bunch of events you have to go yeah, out yeah. there the, like the county is a is a large county it's no small population yeah um you said there were seven other people running there were also a, there was a big lack of diversity in the current board right. um i can only imagine what the rest of the candidates look like from a visual perspective um you know seattle as we know it today very diverse with tech companies out there bringing in um new folks mm-hmm. but I would also imagine that the consistent voting block of that county and the state still is traditional old-time residents. Yeah. Um, yeah. As and, and so many angles to this, right? Like you're new to right. the game. Right. You don't have name recognition. Right. You're Asian. You're not yeah, yeah. that old, relatively speaking. Yeah. Like what were some of the challenges and how did you overcome yeah. being the youngest? Like you don't belong there. Right. No, oh, yeah, totally. So... Uh, King County is about 2.2 million people. It's, I think, one of the largest counties in the country, probably top 15, top 10. Um, and, and so it's really large. It encompasses all of Seattle and, mo- and, and big suburbs like Bellevue, uh, you know, Redmond, which is where Microsoft is. Um, uh, Bellevue is where basically Jeff Bezos and, you know, there's a neighbor called Medina where, like, Jeff Bezos, Bill Gates and all the heavy execs from this area live. Um, and so it's a pretty big and actually quite frankly affluent county. Um, and so there, I mean, we all know there's the good old boys club, right? Like household names, you know, my opponent in the general was the former mayor of Bellevue. So he had great name recognition. And so you're right. There was a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, hurdles for me as a first time candidate. I think that, um, one of the things that I particularly uh, relish in is being the underdog. And um, I remember when 
uh, I first uh, declared, uh, a lot of people's responses were like, who the hell is this kid, right? This 29-year-old kid who's running a countywide race, has never run in his life, and he wants to go up against the former Bellevue mayor. And there were some other candidates who had run previously for the same port commission position. Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, I feel like, you know, one of the things that, uh, you know, and I'm, you know, I think every, there's this, this hustle mentality where, like, um, um, you know, my secret, everyone, everyone, after I won the race, they were like, how did you do it? How did you beat the former mayor? How did you fund, out fundraise this guy, right? He had, like, he had a lot of money from, you know, he, he, so the former mayor, he's like a partner at one of the largest law firms here in Seattle. So he had deep pockets. He had a great network of people. He he raised a lot of money, and there and, and a lot of people who are like institutional, right? People who are kind of like the old boys club. They they wrote me off, and they didn't even. They were like, "Yeah, clearly this other guy, this mayor, is going to win." And and the answer is really simple. You just outwork your opponent. You, it's just that hustle, right? Like, don't take anything for granted. Um, you outwork your opponent. Right. And, 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 and if you ask people who followed my race, like, what did Sam do? Or like, what made Sam different? I think, you know, even one of my colleagues who was running in the same cycle as me on the port, he was like, I don't know how you did it, but you were everywhere. Like, this guy was everywhere. Like, you know, and, and, and I was for, for about six to eight months. I was at events back to back to back to back to back. Right, I would show up at one event, shake hands, say hi, give my two minutes stump speech, you know, shake a little more hands, and then leave to the next event. Right, the biggest disadvantage I had as a candidate was that no one knew who I was. No one knew who I was, and so I needed to flip that. And the only way for me to make myself known to everybody was to introduce myself to as many people as I can. So I literally just hustled. I drove. I mean, put so much mileage on my car. I just drove all across the county. To get in front of as many people as I can, just cold calling, um, you know, the chambers and and all these groups, 50, 100 percent gatherings, you know, and say, hey, can I just stop by for you know five minutes and let me just introduce myself, give them my two minutes dumb speech, I'll answer a few questions and I'll be out of here, right? You don't even need to put me on the agenda. Let me just like introduce myself, right? And quite frankly, a lot of voters vote with who they're familiar with, right? Like they're, oh, I've heard that name before. Right. Quite frankly, no one follows every candidate in every race. And Port of Seattle races aren't the most sexy, as you mentioned, and people don't follow it. They'll, they'll follow like congressional races and gubernatorial races, but they don't follow port commission races. Right. So oftentimes they'll just vote for whoever they're. Oh, I've heard that name before. Or I've heard good things about this kid, you know. And so that was really what it was. Um, but also one of the things that people discounted was that I, I had experience working in government and politics before. I worked for a member of Congress. I worked in the Obama administration, which I would argue the Obama campaigns revolutionized campaigning in 2008 with their use of big data and targeting and their fundraising strategies. They really changed the way, fundamentally changed the way we campaign uh, in the 21st century. And so, you know, I had learned, you know, throughout my career of working in DC, I had picked up things, right? Uh, that people didn't realize or didn't know. So we had a very strong digital campaign. We had a great mailing campaign. You know, we we did a lot of things that were a little outside the box and or a little more millennial or 21st century-esque. Um, my opponent was in his 60s and he was very traditional, 
Like he did everything by the book. Uh, and so that was the difference. And then, you know, obviously I had some great mentors who provided me people like Gary Locke who endorsed me. Um, you know, these endorsements, a lot of people think endorsements don't matter. But when you're a nobody, endorsements matter, right? When you have the former governor, former commerce secretary, and former U.S. ambassador to China endorsing you, uh, people are like, oh, why is Gary Locke endorsing this random kid, right? And then they start looking into you. Um, and so that was, you know, it was a combination of a lot of things. But I think at the end of the day, if you ask me, like, what was the one factor that made you put you over the edge? It was the hustle. Um, and there are people who are very complacent and entitled um, and not to badmouth my opponent, but I think there was an element of, oh, yeah, I'm going to win. You know, this kid, whatever, like I'm the former mayor. Um, you know, people know my name. Yeah. You know, it's going to be an easy win. And I just I kind of beat him under his nose. You know, he didn't he didn't realize all the things that I was doing behind the scenes. What was election night like with your family and yeah. the, the emotions? Yeah, no, I was, uh, so we had a small election night party. You know, it's funny, in hindsight, people were like, yeah, you know, everyone was telling me up until election night, oh, you're going to win, you're going to be fine. Like, you you clearly are going to win, all these things. I actually had doubts. I didn't know. It, no idea. And I think most candidates would agree. Uh, no, it doesn't matter what the polling says, you never know. Um, and so I decided to have a small election night party because I wasn't sure if I was going to win or not. And so I rented out a small space on the second floor of a small uh, cafe in the International District here in Seattle, which is a sim symbolic in its own right. I wanted to make sure that my we did it in my community. And so uh, I, I did it at a place called Eastern Cafe, invited, you know, close supporters, friends, relatives. Um, and I would say there was probably around 50, maybe, give or take, you know, 50 people or so who showed up uh, in total. And we had food. It was great. Um, and the the uh, you know my, my my family was there. A lot of supporters. The Korean American community was huge in my election. They were very very supportive of me. You know, in Washington we have mail in ballots. So mm. I think California, just like in California, yeah. we mail in the ballots. And so uh, the ballots had been coming in for several days now. Right. It's not like people were waiting for the polls to close. Right. Right. Like, the, the mail-in ballots had been coming in for several, if, if not weeks, several weeks now. And so uh, it was just like 8 p.m. We knew that the first drop, the mail-in mail drop, was going to release. And um, uh, one of my close friends and mentors, his name is Sung, he he was like ref constantly refreshing. I didn't even want, I didn't, I, I wasn't even like on my phone. I didn't even want to be the guy, you know, I was just like, dude, I don't want to, I don't want, I don't want to be looking at that. Um and then, you know, he just comes up to me and goes, dude, you're up by 16 points. And I was like, what? He goes, yeah, you have 56% of the vote. I was like, shut up. No, I don't. And he goes, <laughs> no, you ha you're at 56% right now. And the room just exploded. Like, it was crazy. And, you know, immediately my mom started crying. Um, you know, she came over, gave me a huge hug and kiss in front of all the cameras. It was you know, it's so funny. There's a picture of my mom giving me a kiss, and it's, it's hilarious. Without context, it would be really weird. Um, <laughs> um, but you know, it, it was um, it, it, it was like it was a really amazing moment for me and my family. I think, um, quite frankly, I haven't even asked 
this question yet, but you know, I, I want to go back and be like, did you think I was going to win? <laughs> right? like, ask my parents, point blank, did you think I was going to, did you believe that I was going to win? Or were you just supporting me? You know, and they did so much for me because like, this is what I wanted to do. But it was, it was, it was, it was pretty amazing. Um, um, and I'm quite frankly, I'm still getting used to it. Um, yeah. I, it. It's definitely hit me, but um, I still feel like I have a bit of an imposter syndrome when it yeah. comes to being elected and uh, being in office, you know, um, I know, and you know, people have told me, dude, you earned this, you fought for it. You have every right to be in that position and uh, do your thing. But there is still a part of me where I'm like, man, uh, am I in over my head? Am I even qualified for this? I'm 29. You know, what am I doing? You know, uh, times where I want to push staff and, on certain things, but I'm like, man, am I being, am I in my right mind? You know, and so it's been interesting. It's been an interesting experiment for me uh, that I'm still trying to grow into. It was really fun as an observer, mostly digital, obviously from here in Los <laughs> Angeles. And you know, big shout out to our mutual friend Richard Pio, um, who connected oh, yeah. us last year. And um, it's. It was cool. I mean, look, anytime somebody who looks like me does something big on a stage, it's immediately attention seeking. Yeah. And when you find out more about the guy and the guy's genuine and he actually gives a shit and it <laughs> comes from the good place. Yeah. And then to see the pictures and the photos and the videos of really the unknown American dream being achieved. Yeah. American dreams that our parents didn't even know we could have for our children. Yeah. It's ridiculous. And yeah. I, I don't know, you know, if, if you're a younger person listening to this, like, look, like if you ask your parents, you know, what is your cap of my achievement in a public sphere? Mm -hmm. Public office isn't up there. It's something mm -hmm. that, again, for all the reasons you mentioned earlier, Sam, like our, our frame our, our construct, our experiences in our home countries and all that stuff. Yeah. But I, I saw those photos. Like your dad has the biggest smile on his face. Like, <laughs> yeah. Wipe it off for weeks. And it's just, yeah. you know, the, the immense amount of pride. And, and look, yeah. I put that into the context of like, this is chapter. That's not, again, this is not your last chapter. Right. So mm -hmm. um, I am so proud of you. I, I think what you've done so far is amazing. Um and, you know, I, I, from November, it was exciting. In December, I saw the photos and the videos of you getting sworn in. And yeah. it was cool. Um, and then you went through a period of, holy shit, what did I sign myself up for? <laughs> That's right. I'm still going through that period now. No, actually. No, I'm not through that yet. But, um, take us through what that was like. Because yeah. Uh, yeah. Seattle, Washington, as we all know, was one of the first cities to get hit. That's right. pretty hard you yeah. um and i guess give us a little bit of context on when we say the port we're not talking about just ships right like we're, you're talking right what, what do you actually control and yeah, how yeah. the infrastructure yeah that's that's a good question i think a lot of people is even voters in seattle don't understand exactly what the port of seattle entails so uh we have basically four main functions or what we call business lines uh the first one is obviously uh um cargo Right, so those huge forty-foot, twenty-foot containers that come by ocean—that's uh, that's, that's uh, kind of our bread and butter. 
uh, as far as what we were originally founded to do, right? When the port was originally founded, we were uh, meant to do that that kind of stuff. So all those ocean freighters coming from Asia, uh, they come to the port of Seattle. So I always say, you know, unless what unless it was made in Seattle, I mean, made in the U.S., it probably came to the port of Seattle if you live in Seattle, right? Whether it's your food or your clothes on your back or the computers you're using, they probably came through the port of Seattle. Uh, the second one, and this one is actually probably is, is our biggest in terms of budget and money, is the airport. So if you've ever traveled through SeaTac Airport or Seattle International, in Seattle Tacoma International Airport, that is actually Port of Seattle. Uh, and so we're actually very unique as a port to have both aviation and maritime. Um, there aren't a lot of uh, ports out there in the country that have both the the usually airports and seaports are kind of segregated or separate. But we're we're very unique in that we have both. We have both. We we as a commission we manage both the airport and the seaport. Um, the third one is cruise. So um, cruise is a fast growing industry. Um, it's been um, something that um, has grown a lot in Seattle, particularly because cruises, shorter cruises, one week cruises to Alaska have become very popular amongst Americans and uh, international travelers, like retirees. So our cruise industry has has, has exploded here in Seattle. Going from Seattle to Alaska, uh, and the last one is commercial fishing, right? So those huge boats that if you've ever, if you've ever watched the show Deadliest Catch, right? That those boats are actually uh, they're home ported in Seattle. Huh. Yeah. So in the off season when they're not up in Alaska, uh, catching, uh, you know, uh, king crabs and, and and salmon and whatnot, they're actually home ported in Seattle. Hmm. Uh, and so the, the, in, in fact, we just sent off the fleet a couple of weeks. Ago. I did, um, the blessing of the fleet a few weeks ago. It's actually season now for commercial fishing. So hmm. our, our ports are filled with commercial vessels, but, uh, so that's the fourth one is the commercial fishing industry. Um, and so that's the four. And as you alluded to earlier, because of COVID-19 and the pandemic, every business line has taken a hit. Um, and so. Uh, cruise season is pretty much canceled for the foreseeable future. As everyone knows, travel is down. So aviation, our airport has been seeing a huge drop, like 80% drop in people going, uh, people flying, um, you know, cargo was down. Cargo was the first thing to get hit, actually, because, you know, we, we depend so much on China and trade with China that when China first went through COVID-19 pandemic, uh, the international trade plummeted back in like late December, early January, which is before we it hit us here. And so we we actually felt it uh, a lot sooner than um, than everyone else because of that. Uh, commercial fishing is still is still happening, so it hasn't taken as big of a hit. But I think the demand for uh, seafoods and goods might go down, so they might take a hit as well. But right now, um, that's the situation we're in. Uh, and this all happened within the first four weeks of my office, you know. <laughs> Take me through your mindset of this. Yes, it falls within the purview of your job. Did we know yeah. this was going to happen? Arguable. And, you know, you guys locally acted faster than, you know, other municipalities and obviously, you know, uh, some in the federal government. How did you know or how do you know what you are doing is right by the community because with in your group of five you hold a lot of power billions of dollars of eventual economic ups and downs but also the health and safety 
mm-hmm. of not just Seattle, but it's a big uh, yeah. landing spot for um, airports. And yeah. it is an area that is heavily um, visited and also populated by people yeah. from Asia. I think the honest answer um, is that I don't know. Um, and uh, that's been a part of, that's a huge part of the challenge in these uncertain times. Uh, the truth is, there's no playbook for what we're dealing with, right? There's no precedence for a global pandemic in the last few years of this magnitude, right? We can point to different case studies of um, small, uh, you know, pandemics and whatnot, right? Like, uh, it, you know, one thing that we uh, that I thought about instantly was when I was served in the Obama administration back in 2015, I think it was, we had the Ebola outbreak, mm-hmm. right? And people, if people remember, Ebola became a pretty big concern for everybody. And it didn't end up, obviously, it didn't end up becoming as big of a problem as this coronavirus pandemic is today. I think partially because we had a competent federal government that was actually good at what you know, at dealing with the Ebola break. I think the Obama administration did is was, you know, did a spectacular job at dealing with the Ebola outbreak at the time. And actually as a follow up to the Ebola outbreak, they 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 put together a playbook for how to deal with the pandemic. Um, what when I say there's no playbook uh, for this, it's that this is such a prolonged and pandemic. Uh, it's it's I think it's beyond it is beyond it's beyond what any local government like the Port of Seattle or any city could have prepared for, right? Um, you know, separate from the federal government, just thinking about it from the local and state government side, like there's just no way that we could have prepared for a situation where uh, we were basically on our own, right? Where you, in a normal scenario, in a normal situation like this, we would look to the federal government for guidance on how to tackle these, right? We say, okay. You know, Center for Disease Control, CDC, how do we do this? Right? How, what do we need to do? Right? Uh, FDA, what do we need to do? White House, give us the guidance on policy, FAA, whatever. Right? We would normally defer to our federal counterparts for guidance on how to deal with these situations. But right now, that guide, in the absence of that guidance, we are having to basically just slap shit together and try to like, keep things together as much as we can. And that's what I mean when we say there's no playbook for this. Um, Part of the biggest challenge for this case study is that, you know, as a port, we've taken a huge revenue hit, right? right? No, no aviation, no maritime means no revenue for us as a port. We're basically a landlord for all these businesses. And so we, if you have no revenue, you know, it's going to hurt us. Same for cities. A lot of cities depend on sales tax, uh, business taxes, and or even income taxes to for their budgets. Um, and so... These local municipalities are being asked to provide economic relief and stimulus to the communities that are being impacted, which they totally should, and they should look to do that as much as they can. But the biggest handicap for us and the biggest handcuffs that we have is we don't even know the fiscal implications of this for ourselves. So if we start giving out money and start providing all the stimulus, uh, we could potentially put ourselves into a situation where we're insolvent or don't have enough liquidity to pay our own uh, city staff, port staff, or we might find ourselves in a situation where we have a huge budget deficit. Um, Mm -hmm. And depending on where you are, budget deficits for municipalities, that's actually not constitutional and stuff like that. And so it really, um, 
puts us in a really bad situation because our decisions, like the decisions that I've had to make in the last three or four months on providing tenants with relief, providing economic stimulus package as a port, has been based on forecasts and projections that we have no degree of certainty on, right? Yeah. Like we don't know if this is we don't know if this is going to go on for another month, two months, three months, four months, or another year. Right. So when I say, okay, we're going to give ten million dollars to the tenants at the port of Seattle, right? That ten million dollars is just kind of like is a hit to our budget, obviously, because it's it's something we're giving away, and we're making those decisions based on very very uh, non exact forecasts. Sure. Uh, and this is the case for every every you know local state government. Um, if you live in a very well-run municipality, hopefully there's a rainy day fund that you can tap into, right? Most, uh, I mean, the Port of Seattle has a rainy day fund that we're probably going to tap into. The, the city of Seattle has a rainy day fund. Our state has a rainy day fund. Um, and so there are uh, certain mechanisms in place for these situations. But at the same time, we need to be smart about how much money we're spending within, you know, if we if we shoot all our if we get if we if we deplete all our ammo within the first month and we have nothing six right. months from now, people are going to say, "What the hell?" Right? Why was this? Why was your policy so shitty? Or why why did you guys do? Why did you guys spend all your money in the first month when this is going on for six or eight months? Uh, and so a lot of people think that oh like why are, why is government so slow to move or whatever or, or provide these packages and stuff but a lot of it is actually because we don't want to fuck it up quite frankly right. uh, and a lot of elected especially elected officials are so sensitive to public sentiment the media how people perceive what they're doing there's a lot of risk adversity right now sure um, just talking to a bunch of other electeds uh i was just thinking if 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 ever a city had a rainy day fund, I think Seattle's would be very big. You would think uh, that. that, that's a, that's a rain joke. Our rainy day fund is Amazon. It's called Amazon. I'm just kidding. Just kidding. <laughs> oh my God. Let, let's not even get, get into that. Cause you, you, you have some big, big, big employers out there who, yeah. from a, uh, a public safety perspective move fairly yeah. quickly in, in yeah, making or, or, you know, asking people to stay home. So, you yeah. know, Microsoft and Amazon were the, one of the first two. And so it's okay. like, holy crap. Well, one, it was good. But two, it actually led the way for a lot of other organizations down right. in the Bay and, and other places to be like, well, holy shit, if they're doing it, aren't they onto something? Yeah. Because they're yeah. probably very, very smart people. Um, I think you have, whether it was the job you, yes, it's a job you signed up for. Was it the actual day-to-day you signed up for? Nobody knew. Yeah. Um, and as you mentioned, you are guided by uh, insight. You are guided by perspective. You are guided by science and the collaborative efforts that you must deploy between your entity, the cities, the counties, the the states, and the federal government. Um, I think the entire Seattle and state of Washington has done a far better job. That um, no news is good news in a way, right? Like, yeah. Um, obviously, it's. There's too many things going on right now. You see ridiculous videos out of uh, Michigan and other places where it's just, yeah. I'm yeah. really scared for those people out there yeah. that are, you know, it's going to um, rear its ugly head in a couple of weeks. Yeah. Um, but uh, we, we find great uh, confidence and, and relief in, in having people like you in place 
Um, I think if that doesn't take away a lot of that imposter syndrome of you are, this is the moment you pre- you didn't know you were preparing for, right? Yeah. And, and I think going all the way back to um, your childhood of what you did for your dad and, and mm-hmm. you know, all that experience, I think the short answer is whether you are the, um, you know, part of Seattle commissioner or whether you are um, any elected official trying to make sense of all this, the short answer is we don't know much more than the next person, mm-hmm. right? And I think it's how do you make decisions in a vacuum that mm-hmm. you have to defend at yeah. some point, yeah. but you can't because there is no, not that only there is a playbook, we've never seen anything like this, right? So, right. Um, you know, it is, it is nice, I guess is a better term or inspiring to see certain organizations and then large bodies um, prioritize public health and the humanity of things before, you know, financial incentives, because obviously yeah. you are a trustee of a large business in a sense, yeah. a publicly owned business. But yeah. I know we're going to look back on these times years from now and hopefully be able to chuckle about it, but definitely look back at these times as uh, case studies and leadership and decision-making in, in a vacuum where yeah. um, how did, you know, and again, it's not you singularly. There's a commission, obviously, and there's tons of staff and, and resources where yeah. uh, you rely on. But um, I, I think what you've signed up to do and what you're continuing to do is um, well beyond what what society would have pegged you, yeah. an immigrant kid, yeah, at age thirty to do. So, kudos to you, man. I, it's it, it's stressful. Um, I tried sending you Soju via Amazon Prime at one point or Amazon. Oh, did Fresh, you really? That's awesome. Yeah, no, but there were no dates available because, oh. you know, I mean, what I thought it was cool that you could buy Soju on Amazon. <laughs> and delivered. It's really, really um, inspiring um, to see particularly people of my generation doing that. I think it's weird because in our context, it's very, it's a big blurry line, particularly within the Korean American community of when you're supposed to do adult things. Because yeah. your parents always see you as a kid. And yeah. I have kids myself. So like, is it when you become a dad, you're almost a sudden of an adult? Like, yeah. you know, you're always being sort of, yeah. and this is sort of the imposter syndrome and all this negative yeah, self-talk. Yeah. But like, as kids, we looked up to people in the 30s and we're like, yeah. damn, they're old. They're adults. Yeah, yeah. yeah, and then yeah. when you hit your 30s, you're like, I don't know anything still. I'm yeah, just yeah. still making it up as I go. So yeah. Um, but you know what the great irony of that is? The great irony of that, and I feel the exact same way, is that through, especially as the son of as as the child of immigrants, um, and you know, kind of alluding back to when I say you're kind of the ambassador to the rest of the world, you've been doing adult things for the, your whole life because sure. there are things that your parents, there's yeah. things there there are holes that you were filling on behalf of your parents for many many years, yeah. but never at any point does that come off as an adult thing, right? Like when I was a, when I was in middle school and writing emails for my dad, never at my point, never at any point. Did I think, oh, I'm an adult, like I'm doing these adult things. No, I was just helping my parents out, right? Right. And so it's very ironic that we still have this like imposter syndrome slash whatever you want to call it, uh, you know, through our lives in our 30s and whatnot. And we think to ourselves, oh, we don't actually know what we're doing or whatever. when When in fact, I feel like we've lived it our entire lives. We just haven't really you know, uh, noticed it or realized it. Uh, and so it's, it's, a, it's a weird uh, paradox that I think, like, I feel that immigrant 
children or the children of immigrants uh, uh, live with. And it's, it's very, it's very fascinating um, to think about it that way. It's a larger phenomenon. We did things because we had to. Yeah. So we never thought to call it something. Yeah, exactly. It's just part of it's just part of life for us, you know. Right. Um, like if you actually documented everything a dry yeah. cleaner owner knows how to do and yeah, put it yeah. in a book. It's a business book. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But if you ask your dad, what did you do? He goes, I I I did I, I fed you. Totally. I ran totally. a business. I did what I had to do. I made decisions and you know, totally. used information and made instinctual decisions. Um this is awesome. Uh I was super excited to have you on the show. Uh, and I am overwhelmed by the amount of stories and, and just uh, wisdom that I think you've, you've shared with us. Um, I want to end the show the same way we end all of our shows, and it is yeah. an homage back to the name of the show called Dear Asian Americans. Mm-hmm. And really, it is a letter to us and from us, but mm-hmm. for all of us, mm-hmm. because these are conversations that I didn't know we could have when I was in high yeah. school. When you were writing those letters at 13, if somebody who was 17 or even 23 years your senior talked to you publicly or through some sort of medium and said, kid, this is how we do things. And if you ever need help, I'm here for you. Yeah. Not that our lives would have been better because our lives were Mm -hmm. good and our parents built it for us that way. But just the amount of perspective that I think we would have gained is far different. So... That's what we hope to do with these conversations here. Obviously, yeah, there's yeah. somebody who's listening that will get inspired to run for public office or to reach out yeah. to you. Um, but share with us what you want to say to the larger Asian American community. Yeah. So I'll, I'll yeah. start the letter and if you could help us finish out the show. Um, so, dear Asian Americans. Be bold. Be daring. Um, take risks. Um Remember that, you know, your parents took a huge risk to come to this country and raise you here. Uh, And part of that is in your blood, too. So don't think that you need to live this conservative, safe lifestyle. Um, And, you know, think about how you can contribute, you know. But at the same time, be safe, right? Don't be reckless and do things that are going to put you in the hole or dig a grave. but I would just say be bold, you know, um, for too long, I think Asian Americans have been discounted and, uh, considered the quiet group, the, the, the subservient group, the, the, the group that puts their head down and work and works. Right. And how we hustle, we definitely hustle and we work, uh, but we can be leaders too. Uh, and those are not mutual exclusive things. And so, um, you know, be bold, um, and daring, uh, and be safe. Thank you, Sam. Um, I know these days are challenging for you. Uh, These days are long. Um, It seems by the time this episode airs, something will have changed um, from a local, regional, or national landscape to how we are responding to this pandemic and um, how we're going to live, at least for the near future. Um, But it's if, if you're listening to this at home, thank you for staying home. It sucks. Yeah. I get it. We're tempted yeah. to go. The weather's getting nice and kids are getting antsy. Um, if you're listening to this in transit because you have to work, man, e- extra thank you. Um, it's because of people like you that we can hope 
to get back to normal as, as fast as possible. So, um, Sam, thank you again, um, not just for thank coming you. on the show and sharing your story, but I mean, take, taking and making that bold decision to run for office, um, to hustle your face off, to, to win that seat, to make your parents cry and, and, and really reshape what Korean Americans can do, what Asian Americans can do in American politics, because this is our country. We do deserve a seat. And you don't have to wait until you've achieved a ton of stuff in life at age, whatever, to dream about running a no-name recognition, yes, well-educated, yes, well-experienced, but new to politics, 29-year-old, son of an immigrant kid who looks like me and you, can win a county seat in a diverse county of 2.2 million, controlling budgets well north of that, um, and really making ethical and human-based and safe decisions for all of us, not just the people that live there, but food and trans, everything comes through the port of Seattle. So, man, I can't wait to hang out in person. Um, we were supposed to a month ago, and we're like, well, well you know, better better safe to stay home. And, um, and until that day comes, rest up, continue kicking ass out there, and Really, uh, thank you for making us all proud, man. Oh, thank you, brother. I really appreciate uh, all you're doing for this. And I think, um, you know, there's there's this popular saying in politics or just in general where there's only three things in life, right? The things you know, the things you don't know, and the things that you don't know that you don't know. And I feel like part of what this podcast is doing is uh, shedding light on the things that people don't know that they don't know. And so I appreciate that. And uh, yeah, I, ho- I wish you all the best, man. Thank you. To better days, rest up, and uh, we'll, we'll see each other in person soon, man. Thank you. Absolutely. Take care. Take care. Thanks so much for listening. Uh, it's an amazing story, and Sam, and just so proud of him. So grateful that he made the decision to run, and it's going to inspire so much more. Um, if you're a young person listening and you are thinking about running, uh, first of all, do it. You're good enough. You're capable enough. And you have a support system behind you to make sure that you are going to win. And reach out to guys like Sam. A common theme throughout his entire conversation was the presence and the support of his mentors. And as he mentioned, he's going to pay it forward. He's already started to. So reach out to Sam however you can. Connect with him. Learn from him. Let's grow the pie together. Let's make sure that our government looks like us. Let's make sure that our government represents our interests. So if you found Sam's story inspiring or fun, please do take a moment to share out his story and the episode with your friends, however you can. Tag us on social media if you do. On Instagram and on Facebook at The Asian Americans. Also DM us if you have any comments or thoughts. Let me know if you want to come on the show yourself and enjoy a conversation here on the podcast. Thanks again so much for listening. Let's continue to celebrate Asian Pacific American Heritage Month. Celebrate, support, and inspire each other. Let's stay healthy and let's stay happy. This has been your host, Jerry Wan, and I'll see you next time.